All right, we're reading from Romans 9, um, verses 1 to 29. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience is testifying to me with the Holy Spirit that I have intense sorrow and continual anguish in my heart. For I could almost wish to be cursed and cut off from the Messiah for the benefit of my brothers, my own flesh and blood. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The ancestors are theirs, and from them, by physical descent, came the Messiah, who is God over all. Praise forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all those who are descended from Israel are Israel, neither are they, neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. That is, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise, promise are considered to be the offspring. For this is the statement of the promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but also Rebekah received a promise when she became pregnant by one man, our, our ancestor Isaac. For though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. What should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason, so that I may display my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he shows mercy to those he wants to, and he hardens those he wants to harden. You will show to me, therefore, why then does he... Will does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, a mere man, to talk back to God? Will what is formed say, say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from, from the same lump once one, one piece of pottery for honour and another for dishonour? And what if God, desiring to display his wrath and to make his power known endured with much patience, objects of wrath, ready for destruction? And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared before, beforehand for glory? On us, the ones he also called, not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles? As he also says in Hosea, I will call not my people my people, and she who is unloved, beloved. And it will be in the place where they were told, you are not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. But Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of Israel's sons is like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will execute his sentence completely and decisively on the earth. And just as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left, not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. What a lovely passage. I hope you're looking forward to it. Um, if you haven't got your Bibles open, get them open and you should have an outline uh, to help you. And uh, we'll be looking at this neglected bit of God's Word often, uh, chapter 9 to chapter 11. We're just going to look at chapter 9 tonight uh, and then 10 to 11 next week. Uh, but it is always worth the work uh, when you spend time in God's Word. And I hope that you will be deeply encouraged by what you hear. Disturbed, but when you work at it, you end up being very encouraged. And so uh, let's pray for God to help us, uh, that I'll have the right words, and that uh, we will listen. Our loving Heavenly Father, again, uh, we just ask for you to speak to us. Uh, we pray that you would um, warm our hearts, um, encourage us, Help us to just um, be more and more trusting of you and what you have done and you are doing. Uh, please, Lord, just give us a confidence in you and in our relationship with you. And so help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, 
I wonder if you ever wonder a question like this, but I certainly did. Um, I uh, have often wondered, if God's so powerful and God's so real, why do so many people reject him? Uh, I don't know if your experience is anything like mine. Uh, when I started following Jesus many, many moons ago, um, none of my friends did. I didn't know a Christian. I'd gone to youth group when I was younger. I knew a few there, but they, I hadn't been anywhere near them for a long while. Um, none of my friends even talked about God, really. Um, and as far as I know, when I became a Christian... Uh, uh, not one person was a Christian in Parramatta Rugby and uh, there were five teams of blokes, there's actually six teams and hangers-on, there was over 100 of us. Uh, as far as I knew, not one of them was, though I've heard lately maybe there might have been a couple of secret ones uh, who never said anything about it, but as far as I knew, there was no one. No one ever said anything about that God stuff. And when I think of my school, 1,500 students, I don't remember any we had no scripture in school the whole time I was there. Not one person came in to teach us SRE. I can't remember anyone at school. At my work uh, in a company called Wormold, used to be fire control, a very big company. Um, I, I've actually heard when I was uh, chatting to a person once, there's a, there's, a, there's a legend in our company, he said, of a guy who used to read the Bible. That was me. It came back. I was the only per I was such a freak that I followed God and that I would read my Bible at lunchtime in the change rooms. Uh, excuse me, girls, but, you know, it's like that. They, they weren't the nicest change rooms, but I'd sit down and sort of rip off all the porno pictures and that's where I sit. They always knew where I sat because they'd been cleared. It, it, was, it was no one, none of my friends, no one I played football with that I knew about, no one in my whole school as far as I knew. There must have been some, but no one ever knew or saw. No one I worked with, there was, there was none anywhere and... If God is so real and so big and so powerful, why don't more people believe? What is it that we can't see? And at the time when Paul wrote this letter, God wrote it through Paul, he was in agony because they were all rejecting him. Chapter 1 to 5, chapter verses 1 to 5 of 9, you see his agony at how many were rejecting. 
I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience is testifying to me with the Holy Spirit that I have intense sorrow and continual anguish in my heart, for I could almost wish to be cursed and cut off from the Messiah for the benefit of my brothers, my own flesh and blood. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, the promises, the ancestors are theirs, and from them a physical descendant came, the Messiah, who is God over all praise forever. Amen. He is agonizing over the question, over the fact, distressed that most people are rejecting the Messiah. He wishes he could save them. He wishes that he wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't be lost to God. He even wishes that he could go to hell in their place so that they might be saved. That's the depth of his distress at seeing this and how it works. The majority are rejecting Jesus. Now, on a sideline, I do want to say that uh, we should also care where people are going. God wants that in our hearts. He wants us to look into the crowds. He wants us to look into our friends and see those who are not seeing him and have deep compassion. And next week we'll look at why, but this week we're not. This week we're leaving that alone and going in this direction. And he says, look at the physical benefits of what Israel had. Um, I don't know if I made it. No, it's probably the next one. Oh, no, I'm going back. No, I haven't got it. That's good. Don't look yet. Okay. Um, but what have, what have they got? Well, look at verse 4 if you've got your Bibles open. They've got adoption. They've got glory. They've got the formal covenant promises, the law, the temple, all the promises. And when God became a man, he became a Jew. And to them, God has revealed himself to the world through the Jews, through the Israelites. But they are rejecting their Saviour and Lord, even with all of that, even with their Messiah turning up. All those miracles Jesus did, he did in front of them. And yet they're still rejecting and chapter 8 says we should be confident in our salvation. But then we have to worry, we have to wonder, well, God made all these promises to them and yet most of them are rejecting God. So if he is the one who made these promises to them, does that mean that God's promises aren't that powerful? They got all these benefits and they still didn't make it and God made all these promises. How come most people are rejecting? How come most of the Israelites are rejecting him? Well, what's important is to listen to God's answer. It's so important that we hear it, reflect on it and understand it and own it so that we might understand this question and what God is doing. What he wants us to know is that we can be confident in God's promises to save those he chooses. But he wants us to understand what that means. Why can we be confident? The first reason he wants us to tell us, tell us is that it's because God's word doesn't fail. Everything that God has promised has come true. And in this area, it is still true. And so verses 6 to 13... But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. And that is, it is not the children of a physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be his offspring. For this is the statement of the promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but Rebecca. And on he goes with these two examples. But what does he say? Verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Why hasn't God's word failed? Well, because not all Israel is Israel. Did I put that or I'll put the answer. Oh, no, that's it. We're going to come back. Uh, that is, not all Israel is Israel. That is, the physical people of Israel are, are not all the saved Israel that God was promising. People are not saved by who they're related to. He wasn't saving a people by their relationship to the man called Abraham. He wasn't saving the physical descendants of Abraham, but he was saving the ones of promise, the spiritual ones. You see, this idea comes out with lots of people in lots of different ways. Uh, I bought a brand new 
red push bike the other day. I, made it, I bought it because it's red, because by being red, it's going to go faster, even before I pedal it. That's what I'm hoping. And uh, the salesman who was selling me this red push bike that goes faster without pedalling it, and uh, I was happy to believe that lie, because I thought, that's good, I want to go a bit faster. And uh, he asked me what I do, because he's in the selling mode, and I told him what I did. And before I could ask him about question, anything I wanted to do, he quickly went off to tell me about how religious he was, because he had an uncle who was a minister, and his uncle who was a minister was such a good guy. And uh, he took that very quickly, talked a lot so that I couldn't get in very easily. And I took this uh, that he was trying to tell me that I should be really comfortable that he's religious because he's got a religious, religious relative and so he's okay. So he won't have to, uh, I won't have to ask him any hard questions about what he personally believed. Now, um, a lot of people have that sort of idea that I'm saved by uh, my family connections. It, it runs through a lot, and the Israelites were the same. They were thinking that they were saved just because they were descended from Abraham. And uh, I don't know if you know, have you ever heard of any Greek people who have the name Papa in their name? Like I went to school with a Papa Theodoru or a Papa. Whenever they put Papa in front of their name, their name is really Theodoru, but they add Papa because that means they've got a priest in the family. And they want everyone to know that there's a priest in their family because they must be pretty good if you've got a priest in your family. And I've told a lot of other uh, nation, nations do that. They sort of highlight when they have some sort of connection. I remember talking to one of my cousins once and I was talking to him about Jesus and it got fairly uncomfortable. And he said, my grandfather's faith is good enough for me. I'm like, what? What's your grandfather's? What's, what's well, it's my uncle. Well, what's my uncle's faith got to do with what you're believing? He just, it was just his way of getting out. And I think, I'm okay because I know someone who's religious. You know, that sort of idea. And that's really what's happening here. People are thinking that people are saved because of their relationships. And so people are looking at Israel and saying, how come Israel aren't all believing? And they're going, they look related. They're God's people. How come they're not being saved? But what God is saying here, that true Israel are not those who are related to Abraham, but it is those who are saved by the promise. True Israel, the true promised children of Abraham who will be saved, are not his direct descendants, but they are going to be people, not of physical descent, but of spiritual descent. People who have faith like him, not people uh, who are just descended to him. The spiritual children are the children that God has promised, and they are not necessarily the ones that you expect. And that's really what those two examples are doing next. I know they're a bit weird, and if you don't know your Bible, this is going to be a little bit confusing, a little bit. But let me tell you, they're two funny examples. That is, uh, he gives us two examples to show that God doesn't save who you expect, that it doesn't always go where you think it's going. And so he says, take Isaac, who was Abraham's youngest son. The normal practice was the oldest son got the farm. The oldest son inherited what was there. The younger son missed out. They might have got a little bit, but the oldest son got the lot. He became it. That's the way it worked in the Bible. But what does God do? He says, no... The younger son, Isaac, is going to get it. He's the unexpected one. God's child, the one that God is going to give the farm to, the one that God is promising, is the unexpected one. And there's also a little bit of a, a trick in there. That is, the older son was born naturally, and he is the one who, who is just born naturally, but the younger son was a miracle baby. So Abraham was very old, but he was still working at that level, we'll leave it alone. But his wife, Sarah, was literally a shriveled up prune. That's just quoting the Bible, if you want to know exactly. That is, it was totally impossible for her to have a baby. She didn't have enough juice. Um, and so she's very, very old. It's an absolute miracle that he couldn't have a baby. And so what happens is God made a promise to Abraham that he was going to have a child of promise through Sarah. And so God allows her to have a baby, though there is no physical possibility of her having a baby. And that baby ends up being a spiritual baby of promise rather than a natural baby born of a person's will, of a man's will. And what God is saying is that the one who is his person, the one who is promising, is the unexpected one, and it is the miracle one. It is the one of promise. And then he says another thing really harsh, in a way for our ears till we get it. He says, and then take Isaac, who was the second son, his, that natural son, and his wife Rebekah, and their two sons, Esau and Jacob. Verse 13, as it is written, I love Jacob, but I hated Esau. 
Now, that's really harsh language, but what he's using is he's using hate as the opposite of being chosen. He chose Jacob, the unexpected one, and he rejected Esau, the expected one, in that way. It's unexpected. God saves people. The people that he is saving are unexpected. They are miracles. They are people of promise, and it doesn't work out the way that you think it will do. God chooses one of Abraham's children, the unexpected one, one of Isaac's children, Jacob, not Esau, before they were born and before they did anything, this was just by God's gracious choice. So the reason that all Israel has not been saved is because God has not chosen all Israel. Are you feeling a little uncomfortable with that? Does this mean that God only saving some or God only saving who he chooses, is that unjust? Is that unjust? It feels like it, doesn't it? It feels like, to me, you, you, you saved Jacob, not Esau. You rejected Ishmael and you took Isaac. Is that unfair? It feels like it. Till we hear and understand that God wants us to understand the next point from verse 14, that it is mercy, not justice, that moves God in this way. He wants us to understand, well, let's read it from verse 14. What should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy unto whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have mercy. I have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will or the effort, but on God who shows mercy. For the scriptures tells us about Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason, that I may display my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he shows mercy on those he wants to and he hardens those he wants to harden. So the choosing of some and not of others can sound unjust until we work out that we are not to confuse mercy with justice. If God was being just and gave people what they deserved, then no one would go to heaven. Let me say it again. If God gave Greg what he deserved, then he would not go to heaven. If God gave you what you deserve, then you would not go to heaven. If he gave us what is just, if we want him just to be give us what we deserve, and then we would not be in heaven. But it's not about justice. When we think about justice, we're thinking the wrong way and we won't understand. We've got to understand mercy. We've got to understand his character. And so when he goes back and he starts saying, think about what happened in the Exodus, he's going, think about my merciful and compassionate character. Think about I'm a God who has mercy on people. And so what we're looking at, when we look at justice, we're missing the point. We're supposed to be looking at, well, isn't it amazing that he's going to have mercy on people like, well, like me and like you. That's what we should be amazed by. Not amazed he's not being just, that he would be merciful to people uh, like us. Justice would mean no one is there, but because he is merciful, some will be there. And that's what we're getting and that's what we're seeing. That is, no one can say that God is unjust because he is merciful. And it's actually on the cross that we see how God solves this and deals with it. On the cross, we see the justice of God and the mercy of God, as we reflected on many times. But what he is doing is saying, when you want to understand me, yes, I am just, but when you want to understand saving people, you need to be looking at mercy, not at justice, or you'll never understand what I am like. God is a God of mercy. You are here because of mercy. Anyone who are in are because of mercy. And the last thing we want from God is just, is justice.
So no one can say God is unjust, unjust because he only saved a few of Israel because it is merciful, not justice, that is on sight. So is God just? Mercy is a gift and not an obligation. Mercy is a gift and not an obligation. No one deserves salvation. It is fair of God to give it to none, to some or to all. And with the example of Pharaoh using the whole Bible, Pharaoh, he hardened his heart and God hardened his heart. His hardening of his heart was always deserved, but his mercy never is. God hardened Pharaoh's hard heart. That's just. But giving someone mercy is merciful and compassionate. God is not unjust. He is merciful. But is it unfair to only save some, to only have mercy on some? Well, he tells us this. He says, trust me. Trust me and know that God's not answerable to us. Trust me and know I know more than you. So look what happens from verse 19. You will say to me, therefore, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, a mere man, to talk back to God? Will what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honour and another for dishonour? And what if God, desiring to display his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath ready for destruction? And what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on his objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory on us, the ones he also called, not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles? So the question is, is God unfair in only saving some? Uh, can he blame people? Can he really blame people who not only won't believe but can't believe? Um, and what's the answer? He says, of course he can. Very uncomfortable. Of course he can. Their choice to reject him is a real choice. He just left them in it which is just. He uses their rejection like he used Pharaoh's rejection to demonstrate his mercy and compassion on Israel and to save people. He uses people's rejection for good, seen most clearly in those who wanted to kill Jesus. He used what they meant for evil, for good. He used it. But... Why only have mercy on some? Well, he says, you've got to trust me on this, really, or Paul is saying. Um, he's not answerable to us. He's the one who made us and created us. Um, we're answerable to him. And, and how can we judge him when he knows everything? There's an arrogance in us going, you've got to tell me why you've done stuff. Where at this point he's saying, no, trust my word, trust me that it will be right and seen as being right in the end. Accept what I'm doing. And this is really what he calls us to do over and over again in his word, isn't it? Has anyone here seen Jesus? Anyone seen the cross? Anyone seen heaven? Anyone seen hell? You see, we've got to believe his word. He's saying, trust me. He's given us his word. He's told us what he said. And he's saying, trust me. Trust me with what I'm doing. What if I have a plan that you can't understand? What if I am doing this for your good? What if this actually highlights my glory? What if... This actually shows how loved you are. What if, if this is the wise thing to do and you just can't see it? What if? 
And he leaves us with really with no answer, but trust me. Trust me that I know more. God is not unfair in saving some. He has his reasons. He has good reasons. He's giving us hints of them, but he's not giving them all to us. He's wanting us to be confident in his promises that he will save who he, cho- who he, who he chooses. He wants us to know his word doesn't fail, that everything he says will come true and we can trust him. He wants us to know that it's really about mercy, not about justice, and to see and understand his mercy. He wants us to trust him. And lastly, in here, one that people often miss is that he wants us to realise that in the end, many Gentiles and a remnant of Israel will be saved, that there are going to be so many in heaven that you and I will not be able to number them. And it's going to be made up of more non-Jews than Jews if we're talking about people's physical descendancy. And so he gives us a quote from Hosea and a quote from Isaiah He gives us these two examples to talk about how the Gentiles are going to come in that are non-Israelites. How many people here aren't a Jew? This is you. How many Jews in the room? Proven again. Uh, And that if God did not save a remnant of Jews, they would not be here. And so what he's saying is what I want you to know is there are going to be many, many Gentiles in heaven and there are going to be, in comparison, a few Jews in heaven. But there's going to be a lot of them. Most of Israel was rejecting God at the time, just as God said they would. And his people was going to be made up of the nations. And we know that this is true from our point of history, that the the world since then has been dominated by Gentiles coming to the Lord Jesus, that the centre of Christianity has moved from Jerusalem to everywhere else around the world in many different places. And we greatly outnumber the Jews. And really this principle is applied to the whole world. Remember Jesus said, the road to destruction is wide, And many find it and follow it. The road to life is narrow and only a few find it. That is, the principle is that when we look around, it's going to look like most are rejecting and only few are accepting. When you looked at Israel, even those God's people he was talking to, God says it's going to look like most are rejecting and only a few are accepting. This is that principle that is coming through. God is having mercy on a few. We'll find out why next week a little bit more, but just straight off. And if it wasn't for God's mercy, there would be none of us. There would be no Jews and there would be no Gentiles. There would be none of us. And in the new heaven and the new earth, in the home of righteousness, those who will be there will be from every tribe, every nation, every language of the earth. From all time, there are people from everyone who will be there. And they will be like the sands of the desert, which was his promise. They will not be able to be numbered as we look into Revelation and see. And they will only be there because of God's mercy and that he keeps his promises. God sovereignly and mercifully chooses who is to be saved. For if he didn't have mercy, there would be none. Two big implications for us to finish off with, and then you might want to do questions afterwards, but build them up. The first one is, he wants us to be confident in sharing the gospel. He wants us to be confident in sharing the gospel about Jesus, his life, death and resurrection. Why? Because that's what he uses to save people. That's what he uses to call in his chosen ones. That is, people will respond to hearing the gospel. It will, call, it will be a few rather than a many, but it is how God calls in his people. Now, I've been teaching uh, SRE for many years. I haven't for the last few Uh, But I taught it for 20 years, many, many, long, long time. And uh, when I first started, I used to be disappointed because 
uh, being overconfident in my skills. I thought I was fairly interesting and all that sort of stuff and people are going to respond and I thought everyone's just going to be falling down on their knees and turning to the Lord Jesus because isn't that just so fantastic? But as I went and taught in schools, I realised that's not how it works. As you teach, you know, it's not like that. And then after uh, learning this sort of thing from God's word, I started realising I was looking for the wrong thing and that's why I wasn't seeing it. I was looking for lots and what I was supposed to be looking for was the few. And so what I started doing was every time I spoke in a class, I would look for the one person or two people who were showing interest in what was being said to follow up. Sometimes the, uh, the person who was responding was obvious and sometimes it was subtle. The obvious one is I can remember people standing up in front of the class going, I want that, give me a program, where is it, I'm coming to youth group next week, I want to turn to Jesus. And did it sometimes in front of their class and I was always amazed that how, how that happened because I used to think it was me but guess what, guess who it was? Yeah, it was God, that's right. But then there's the less obvious ones when someone just us a question that's very insightful or someone stays back to ask something or someone was just staring at you the whole time without the mean evil look you know that other look that other stare the one of oh yeah that's really good that and they're the people I followed up and I noticed that through them then I started seeing that God was calling in lots of people when I started looking for the right thing don't look for all of your friends to respond look for the one don't look for all of your family. Look for the Keep looking for who's interesting. So keep trusting the gospel because that's what God used to save you. That's what God uses to save others. That's how God calls in his chosen. I used to come and say, let me convert the whole of Pitt Town. Let me convert everyone. Lord. Wouldn't that be fantastic? But now I pray, help me to share the gospel and help me to call in your chosen ones. How does he do that? As we share the gospel. So be confident in the gospel. But secondly and mainly, uh, we need to be confident in our own salvation. Why? Because he chose me, because he chose you. How do you know he chose you? Well, as we learn from chapter 8, he has put you in Christ or he's calling you into Christ. He has given you the indwelling Holy Spirit or he will give you the indwelling Holy Spirit. Call out for him and ask you to save you if you're not saved because you can't save yourself. Ask him to do it. But for us here, most of us are saved and you know he has turned your heart to put your trust in the Lord Jesus. He has turned you to follow him. He confirms it, uh, that God is your father and you are his child. Uh, he promises that those in Christ will get there. And because he is the one who chose you, guess what? You're going to make it. If it was you, you wouldn't make it. You're only making it because of him. It's only because of his mercy. You have experienced it in many ways. He's given you desires that make you uncomfortable with sin and wanting to desire to follow Christ, to come together in his name. You're learning from his word that he's a God that keeps his promises and his promises do not fail. So don't let people's reaction to you fool you or make you doubt God's love for you or the power he has to keep you saved or to save people or that he is not saving people from around the world all the time. He loves those he has chosen. His word is doing everything that he planned it to do. He is calling them in because he is a God of mercy, calling in people. And we are a part of something very, very big. God is using his word to save people from around the world every day. Thousands every day thousands of people are turning to him in countries all around the world even in little old australia there are people turning him all the time you just can't see them we've got to trust god the picture is much bigger you see i've learned later in later in life that chris's uncle who was in one of the teams i played in and then he got better than me and kept on going up he loved the lord jesus he was just a bit quiet about it or maybe i didn't hang around him enough there were people around in the crowd i've heard that there was an icf group at my school i never saw them for dead fit but there was a group in there and there's people who told me later when they found them that their god is doing stuff it just there's no tattoo on your head i'm a christian and you walk around they're in the crowd that looks like there's not everyone there's a few compared to many but there are very many of god is calling people out everywhere he loves those he has chosen he has a glorious future in store for us you can be confident because he's got you and he will not let you go get on with it 
Be assured and confident in his promises. He is doing what he has planned. His word is working in the world, in you. Let us see that he is a God that is just having mercy on people through the gospel over and over again. Give you a second. How about we uh, we pray after that? It's a bit of a lot. And I think we need God's help to understand it, take it in, think about it. So let's pray. Father, God, we often get this part wrong. We love hearing about how much you love us, but we forget to love you. We love hearing about the things you have given us and done for us, but we forget about you who did them for us. We come to church concerned about ourselves, nervous for the week to come. We come to church stressed about the week that has been, forgetting that you are in total control. We forget that you have planned our future and you alone shaped our past. And we're sorry for this, God. We ask that this week help us to start afresh and enable us to live for you. Compel us through your spirit to make decisions every day that honour you and that put you first. We think of those in our lives who don't know you, those we care for and love. We heard tonight, Lord, that you are in control and you have chosen the people who you will save, but we ask that those who we're thinking about, those we care for and love, that you have mercy on them and you bring them into your kingdom. For our friends, for our families, the one we love and the ones we struggle to love. Help us to share Jesus with them. Help us to share you with them. Help us to have confidence in sharing the gospel, reminding us that you are in total control, that you are the one working and it's not us. Use us this week to fulfill your plan of salvation for the ones you have chosen. Lord, we ask that you help us to trust you. We struggle to understand the ways in which you are working, the ways in which you have worked and the plan that you have for this world. But please remind us again and again that you are strong and that you are powerful to save that you care for us and that you are perfect in everything that you do. Your knowledge and wisdom fars outweighs anything that we can understand. So please, Lord, help us to trust you when we come to passages like this. And finally, we thank you for Jesus' death on the cross, that he has paid the price for our salvation and we can be confident that we'll be with you in heaven in those last days. We thank you that you have chosen us and we ask again that you help us to continue trusting in you. Amen. We're going to uh, continue singing. And I'm going to hand these tubs around. And the tubs are tubs. Uh, but this is the part of the, the night where us as Christians, we give back to God. He's in total control of everything and he's given us a lot. He gives us the income that we have, but he wants us to give back. So uh, this going to hand them around and do that. And day camp? Oh, pop the day camp slip in. <laughs>